Out of the Fourth Place, Chapter 4, Constantine, the Architect. In 2016, the Academy Award for Best Picture went to the film Spotlight. In the movie, a team of journalists uncover the Catholic Church's prolonged and horrific sexual abuse cover-up in the city of Boston. In a haunting monologue, a now-grown-up survivor of the abuse explains what happened to him. When you are a poor kid from a poor family, religion counts for a lot. And when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. He asks you to collect the hymnals or take out the trash. You feel special. It's like God asking for help. So maybe it's a little weird when he tells you a dirty joke. But now you've got a secret together, so you go along. Then he shows you a porno mag, and you go along, and you go along, and you go along until one day he asks you, for sexual favors, and so you go along with that too. How do you say no to God, right? How did this happen? Let's not pretend that this is simply a Catholic issue. Spiritual and sexual abuse are well known in Protestant circles as well. This is not a question of Catholic or Protestant. It is a question of power. How do you say no to God, right? Maybe you have similar questions. How in the world did a movement that started in a humble manger end up in the marble halls of St. Peter's Basilica with power over the known world? How did a prince of peace spread Christianity through violence? How did evangelicals in America become enmeshed with political power? How did we end up with the movie Spotlight? This chapter is dedicated to answering those questions. The key antagonist in this part of the story is Emperor Constantine. Though, as we will see, he was certainly not alone in the project, I also want to be clear that it is best to avoid two common errors when speaking of Constantine. One is to overemphasize discontinuity with the past. Some would say that prior to Constantine, Christianity was all about spontaneity and freedom, and after his reign, the church suddenly became liturgical. No, the church always has and always will utilize liturgy. Liturgy itself is not the problem. Rather, it is the use of liturgy for power and control that is the issue. The other common error with Constantine is to overemphasize continuity, as if Roman Catholicism was just the natural result of what Jesus began. No, as we will see, in Constantine there is both continuity with the past and discontinuity. Much looks similar and yet something historically monumental occurred. As we trace the development in church forms through the 4th century, you will see the medium of integration slowly shift back to the medium of separation. If you're feeling disillusioned with the church or want to know why we do the things we do in today's church, there is a good chance your answers are deeply rooted to this era. I want to help you connect their dots Getting church out of the fourth place will involve untangling ourselves from the fourth century. When Constantine reconstructed Christianity, he rebuilt the church on a new foundation. We need to understand that foundation if we want to excavate and eventually rebuild church on the older and better foundation of Jesus. The Earliest Gatherings In the first two centuries, as we have discussed, the church met primarily in public and in homes. There were no basilicas, no temples, no megachurches. We see it throughout the New Testament. Acts 5.42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Romans 16.5, greet also the church that meets at their house. Colossians 4.15, give my greeting to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. 
We saw a snapshot of their gatherings in the previous chapter found in the writings of Tertullian. The early church believers did not have the slightest interest in developing their own church architecture. In the first half of the third century, the number of Christians increased rapidly, yet the church continued to gather in humble, non-religious spaces. Churches converted larger homes into what they called community centers or meeting houses. These would have been recognized from the street as normal residences, but the interior was altered for the specific needs of the community. They built baptistries, a meeting room that could fit a small crowd, and storage rooms for clothing and food for the poor. A police record from the Great Persecution of 303 AD under Emperor Diocletian records the ransacking of one of these community centers. During the raid, they found lamps in the meeting room, bookcases in a small library, and jugs and chests in the dining room. In a storage room used for charity, they confiscated 82 women's tunics, 38 cloaks, and 60 pairs of shoes. Even a police record from 303 AD, we can sense the priorities of the early church. They utilized their gathering places to incarnate themselves into their cities, serving the physical needs of their neighbors. We see here the integration of place, people, and practices. The community gathered within culture, not separate from it. Leaders led from within the community, not from a stage. Worship was holistic. Yes, they had a liturgical life, but it centered around a meal in the neighborhood. Their lives were a living sacrifice of love for their world. The early 3rd century included long periods free from persecution, even times of political favor. Churches could own property, bury their dead, baptize, and meet in the open. Regardless, they continued to meet in smaller spaces, and their buildings did not stand out in any significant way from any of the surrounding Roman architecture. In other words, even though they had greater numbers, greater resources, and lived with significant choice of location, they remained intentionally integrated into the normal fabric of culture. Seeds of Separation Toward the end of the 3rd century, the ethic of integration started to shift. Christians started to construct bigger buildings of their own. Not coincidentally, at the same time, we also see the rise of bigger egos. For example, in 265 AD, Paul of Samosata, the bishop of Antioch, against the wishes of his brethren, sought personal quarters more fitting a Roman-ranking magistrate, as well as applause when entering the meeting room. Complaints started to arise, even from pagans, that Christian meeting places were getting more pretentious and were starting to resemble Roman temples. We see the same type of response today, as many people look with disdain at those who preach a homeless Jesus, yet spend millions on their own facilities. Eusebius, an early church historian writing in 324 AD, described the last decades of the 3rd century. He documented the growing political power of the church rulers. Quote, Not content with the ancient buildings, they erected spacious churches, daily increasing in magnitude and improvement. Unquote. The buildings were growing, and so was the division. Eusebius described the animosity between Christians over the new buildings and growing competition in the church, recounted one envying and reviling another in different ways. We were almost at the point of taking arms against each other, assailing each other with darts as with spears. In part, as a response to the Christian division caused by these new building projects, in 303 AD, Roman Emperor Diocletian interrupted the period of the relative peace in the church and ordered the destruction of all Christian buildings, scriptures, and leaders. 
The great persecution broke out across the empire. Literally thousands died for their faith, including countless Christian leaders. Constantine. In the middle of this chaos, Constantine stepped onto the stage. He was proclaimed Caesar in 306 A.D. In 313 A.D., the Edict of Milan was issued, which stopped all persecution and granted Christians a favored status within the empire. Finally, victory for the Christians, right? Not so much. There is ongoing debate as to Constantine's motives. Some say he had a legitimate conversion experience and did what he thought was in the best interest of Christ's church. Others argue that he was using the Christians to gain his own control and power over a badly divided empire. I believe the evidence shows a more complicated story. Constantine, following the tradition of Roman emperors, saw an advantage in adopting the Christian God as his patron God. He claimed Christianity as his new religion, but clearly had no intention of bowing his royal knee to what he perceived as a weak and pathetic Christ. Rather, he, in effect, removed Christ from Christianity and set himself up in Christ's place as a new messianic figure, a new Moses, ready to conquer his enemies as God conquered the peoples of the Promised Land. He saw himself as the savior of both Christianity and Rome the strong Messiah the people had been waiting for. Consider the words of Constantine's personal historian. Notice the connection he makes between Constantine and the deliverer Moses. After the example of his great servant Moses, Constantine entered the imperial city in triumph, and here the whole body of the Senate and others of rank and distinction in the city, freed as it were from the restraint of a prison, along with the whole Roman populace, their countenances expressive of the gladness of their hearts, received his with acclamations and abounding joy, men, women, and children, with countless multitudes of servants greeting him as deliverer, preserver, and benefactor with incessant shouts. Moses started his deliverance after an encounter with a burning bush. Constantine started his Christian campaign claiming a vision of a cross in the sky along with the words, In this sign, conquer. When Constantine's enemies drowned in the Tiber River, he compared it to Pharaoh's armies drowning in the Red Sea. Like Moses, Constantine even built himself a mini tabernacle where he would go to meet with God. Scholar Alastair Key compares the differences between Constantine and Jesus. If truth be told, which one looks more like a Messiah? Is it Constantine, born to the purple, who wears his rich robes easily as one has never doubted his right to them? Or is it the son of a carpenter who, while being tortured and used for sport by the soldiers after his arrest, was made to wear a royal robe because it was so incongruous? Who looks more the part of a king who fulfills the longing for a successor to David? Surely it is the emperor in his court, surrounded by the evidences of wealth, rather than the one who can only say, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Did Rome become a Christian state? No. Rome was not conquered by Christ. Christ was pushed aside by Constantine. In a move of political genius, he was able to do what no Roman emperor had ever done, win the Christians to his side all the while undermining everything Christ embodied. Much blame has been placed on Constantine for ruining Christianity. I will put a lot of blame on him as well. However, it is not as simple as pointing a finger at one man. 
There is plenty of evidence to show that Constantine was sincerely trying to help the church. From his legislation benefiting oppressed people groups to his attempts to bring church unity through Nicaea and other councils, his motives may have been just as pure as any one of us who tries to help Jesus along through our own systems of power. Constantine was certainly not the only one who wanted to see a state-empowered church. The seeds of lording it over others were already sprouting during the latter half of the 3rd century prior to Constantine. Christians wanted fame. They wanted power. They wanted bigger buildings. They wanted to impress people. Constantine did not act alone. Constantine had a ripe audience for his bigger and more glorious Christianity program. Many Christians were moving in this direction anyway. Constantine just put a royal stamp on it and all the resources of the empire behind it. After all, who wouldn't want a little redemption? Emperor Diocletian had just recently persecuted and executed their friends, their leaders, who wouldn't want a reprieve from the violence. What leader doesn't want a little public notoriety, a better paycheck? Let's be honest, Christianity wasn't free from hubris in the first two centuries either. The same lust for significance was in the apostles the night of the Last Supper when they argued about who was the greatest. The reality is that the same seed of pride lives in all of us. If you understand modern history, you will realize that this is not the first time nor the last time that Jesus is hijacked for political means. We will look at Constantine and his disastrous effects on Christianity, and as we do, let us look at our own hearts. Look at our own church experience and ask yourself if the spirit of Constantine isn't alive and well today. Whatever Constantine's motives were, what scholars agree on is that a fundamental change happened. How much of the change was directed by Constantine himself? We don't know all the details. What we do know is that under his leadership, Christianity was converted to Rome. Christendom was born. The rule of the Christian state. Constantine marked the marriage of political and spiritual power brokers, an unholy matrimony. Jesus said, Destroy this temple and I will rise it again in three days, in John 2.19. Jesus ended the era of physical temple. The veil was torn in two. What was previously separated became integrated. The church was a spiritual family on mission together, a living sacrifice, a humble movement of service and love. Constantine, however, did not self-identify with Jesus. No, Constantine claimed his Christian roots in Moses, the mighty deliverer, and in David, the great king and conqueror. Like the kings of old, it wasn't right to have a Roman palace without a fitting house for her deity. It was time to rebuild the temple. It was time to rebuild the fourth place. Let's take a look at what happened to the forms of place, people, and practices when the great architect went to work on his empire-wide temple rebuilding project. A sidebar, Keys to the Kingdom by Dudley Callison. We had the joy of living in Turkey on mission for two years. Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, was the epicenter of Christendom for 1,000 years. And the Hagia Sophia Church was the heartbeat of the empire. After 1400 AD, it became the center of the Ottoman Empire, serving as a template for mosques built all around the world. It still stands today as a museum for both Christians and Muslims. Inside, the plaster put up by the Muslims is falling off, revealing the most amazing tile mosaic artwork which originally covered the walls. Millions of tiny tiles, all hand-placed, 
form images of Christ and the early church. One mosaic stands out as most telling. It is a scene of the Pope and the Emperor. The Pope is handing the keys of the kingdom of God to Constantine. In return, Constantine is giving the keys to the city to the Pope. It depicts the wedding of church and state, the commingling of power. Many have described this as the crowning achievement of the church, the moment the church was freed from the state-led persecution. Looking back, we have to ask what happened to the vibrant, organic version of church that grew immensely in spite of the persecution. Place. Rebuilding the Holy of Holies. Remember the Old Testament temple structures? Remember the concentric circles separating the holy things from the unholy? Constantine rebuilt those. Where Christians used to meet in community centers and homes, Constantine standardized Christian architecture in large, aisled meeting halls called basilicas. The word basilica means royal building. Since the basic form had been in place for centuries, often used for pagan worship, the very architecture represented a blending of Christ, Roman royalty, and paganism. Basilicas themselves were not the whole problem, at least not in Rome. In Rome, some basilicas were simple covered structures used for many purposes, including business. Christians could have gathered both in simple basilicas and also in homes and stayed relatively integrated with their culture. The problem with the basilicas was threefold. One, when the basilica was used outside of Rome, it no longer integrated with culture, but imposed Roman culture. Two, when the basilica was improved on and made more impressive, it no longer reflected integration, but Christian imperialism. And three, when the basilica gathering replaced the meal as a central Christian gathering, it fundamentally changed the nature of Christianity. Where before Christians met around tables and a meal, now they would sit in rows, facing a platform. Sound familiar? Not only that, but Constantine insisted that the new basilicas be elevated above the surrounding buildings. What is the message of that medium? The church is now the overseer of culture rather than its servant. If your church steeple or cross or billboard stands over and above your neighbors, you can thank Constantine for that. Constantine repurposed the basilica as a religious building to separate outsiders from insiders, the clean from the unclean. Heinrich Lutzer describes the impact of the basilica architecture this way. It exists without the world. It exists against the world, drawing men forcibly inside. The most unclean stayed outside the basilica in the outer courts. Yes, they actually built outer courts for non-believers, just like the Jerusalem temple. They built separate sections for the catechumens, those not yet baptized, the main congregation of the faithful, and finally for the most holy group, the clergy. Where leaders in the early church needed no special seats, Constantine's clergy were separated at the front of the hall on the platform. Sound familiar? He even had screens built to visibly separate the clergy from the laity, making the clergy appear even more holy and mysterious. What impact did the basilica have on Christianity? It was a complete paradigm shift. The primary identity of the church shifted from being a spiritual family on mission together to being an event in a building. Acts 20 verse 7 says, On the first day of the week they came together to break bread. Breaking bread is how Luke described the weekly gathering 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Prior to Constantine, the community was the main thing, and the location was secondary. The church was a who, not a what. The location was functional only. The question was, what type of place will best facilitate the community and our priorities like fellowship, eating, and mercy? The message of the pagan temples was just the opposite. Temples were about what, not who. The glory of the deity was reflected by the building itself and the quality of the ceremony. If the craftsmanship, the cost, and the ornamentation, the incense, and the music were excellent, then a great God must dwell there. If you wonder why we dress up for church or invest countless dollars in sound systems, it's because we think those things reflect our devotion to God. Do you see the foundational shift in thinking and practice here? It sounds so noble. Don't we want to display God's glory after all? Don't we want to build God a lavish home? Doesn't he deserve our excellence? The problem with this line of reasoning is that it is the exact opposite of what the New Testament teaches. God chooses where to display his glory, not us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God chose to display his glory in jars of clay, weak, Normal people with nothing impressive on the outside, but who were full of the God's Spirit on the inside. God chose the human heart as the dwelling place of His glory, a temple made of flesh. The true God accepts us as we are, no makeup, no fancy clothes, blemishes, and all. God accepts normal, not Rome. Rome needed power. Constantine transferred the glory of God from the weak back to the strong from flesh back to brick and mortar. In doing so, Constantine changed the very foundation of the church. Constantine's foundational paradigm was this. Church is primarily an event in a building. Church would no longer be identified by the people, but by the address. The dwelling place of God moved back into the fourth place, like this. Again, note to the audio listener, there's the same four-quadrant chart, our place, our thing, their place, their thing, and there's an arrow pointing from the lower right quadrant to the upper left quadrant, meaning they were going from the their place, their thing, and bringing the church to be in our place, our thing. Does someone on your church platform ever say, welcome to the house of God? You can thank Constantine for that. Do you call your meeting place a sanctuary? a word meaning holy place? Or do you call it a worship center? Do we realize that we are telling people that the center of worship is in a building? Do we realize how this violates the most basic New Testament theology of a dwelling place of God? Constantine rebuilt the temple. No longer would worship in spirit and truth be about a mobile temple taking God's glory into the world. In order to worship God, we would again need to come to the particular place the holy place, the church building. Church would no longer be identified by the people, but by the address. People, reinstating the priesthood. Remember the temple priests? Remember the select class that had access to God while others had to wait outside? Constantine rehired them. Not only did Constantine rebuild the house of God, the center of worship, he also rebuilt the altar, 
Guess where he placed it? Right behind the screens where only the priests had access. Do you see what he did? He separated out a new class of holy people as mediator. He built forms that told common people they could no longer have direct access to God. They couldn't go to the altar on their own. They needed a priest. In the New Testament, people are the sacrifice and the world is the altar. Believers, rich or poor, righteous or sinful, black or white, male or female, have full access to the throne room of God. Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Constantine disagreed. He rebuilt a physical altar. Does your church have one too? Is it up front near your preacher? What does it look like? Is it steps ascending to your platform? Is it a table? Do you give altar calls? Where do people go? Toward the front? Toward the holy man? Constantine put the Holy of Holies back in business and restitched the curtain Jesus tore apart. Guess what were added as decorative elements onto many of the screens? Cherubim. The same cherubim that kept Adam and Eve out of Eden and common people out of the Holy of Holies now separated the clergy from the laity. The work Jesus did on the cross to make a way for everyone right into the very throne room of God was despised in favor of a new hierarchy. The new altar was just as inaccessible to the congregation as was the Ark of the Covenant to the Jews. In a matter of decades, the New Testament priesthood of all believers, the beautiful diverse temple of the Holy Spirit, was redivided into holy and unholy, clean and unclean, Jew and Gentile, male and female. Not only were priests given a whole new level of holiness, they were also given political power. Constantine considered himself the 13th apostle, Christ's vicar on earth, the seat of justice, the invincible son, who was divinely chosen to lead Christ's church to victory over her enemies. With such glorious titles, how could the rest of the clergy class escape his efforts to make the religious elite worthy of the empire? He elevated his church leaders in the same way he elevated himself, giving them rank and privilege as government officials. The church leadership structure already mirrored that of the empire, with town and parish and clergy, provincial bishops and major holy sees in dominant church centers such as Alexandria, Rome, and Constantinople. When Rome married Christ, it was only natural to also grant local church leaders political authority to match their regional church influence. Jesus encouraged his followers not to choose the best seats. Constantine disagreed. Instead, the bishop, clad in the garments of the high magistrate, entered the church in solemn procession, preceded by the insignia of his official rank, candles and book. Flanked by his presbyters, he was seated on a throne. Constantine took all the cultural flavor, humility, beauty, and variety out of the early church, systematized it, polished it, and professionalized it. In the early church, leaders served from within the community. People with normal jobs, families, and character served as elders. No specialized training required. Look at Paul's list to Timothy of the requirements of an elder, and you will see that most of the qualifications pertain to integrity, life experience, and family. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 When Constantine professionalized the clergy, the amount of training and specialization increased exponentially. Church became a show containing all the flair of the imperial court. 
just like the Levites of old. Only a select class of trained professionals were up to the new performance standards. How much time, energy, stress, and budget does your church dedicate toward making Sunday a good performance? You can thank Constantine for that. Paul's churches were led by faithful men and women with normal lives and good reputations in the neighborhood. Constantine's clergy became a new class of Christian celebrities. Practices Reinstating the Sacrifice Remember the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament temple? Constantine reinstated those too. Not content with the humble and highly participatory meals, scripture readings, teaching, prayer, and charity of the early Christian gatherings, Constantine needed it bigger and better, more expensive, more elaborate. Christ's glory demands it. He had already designed architecture to draw people into the most holy place. He had already elevated his priests as celebrity mediators. What more could he do to draw his masses into his new basilica and unite the empire under one religion? Simple. Turn a community meal into a magic show. Give the bread and the wine the mysterious power to take away sins. Still not enough? Give bread the power to heal. The liturgy of the new mass ran through a litany of rituals, climaxing in the elevation of the host the raising of the bread and wine by the priests. Behind their secret screen, the holy people in the most holy place raised the holy elements toward heaven and consecrated them. In this act, the common bread and wine became the very blood and body of Jesus himself, endowed with special powers for the forgiveness and healing of those present. Over time, people came to believe that the ritual itself had the power to forgive sins, free people from physical suffering, even release relatives from purgatory. The Old Testament sacrificial system had returned, this time not with bulls or goats, but with bread and wine. Now, as a mockery of Jesus' final sacrifice, the Mass became a religious work, a repeated sacrifice necessary to attain grace. The community meal to remember Jesus' completed work on the cross was replaced by a theater of superstition. Everywhere Rome spread, the church spread. Everywhere the church spread, the Mass was used as the standard liturgy. Regardless of context, regardless of language or custom, the standardized Mass in the Roman Latin was performed from Bethlehem to Barcelona. In the early church, variety was the norm. The church was a community, a spiritual family. Families looked different in North Africa than they do in Rome. Practices varied. Liturgy varied. The gathering reflected the diversity of the culture. When Constantine changed the foundation of the church, all of this beautiful variety was swallowed up by uniformity. What Jesus had built as a spiritual family integrated into the fabric of culture, Constantine converted back into a holy place where holy people do holy things. Christianity, the humble faith of the suffering servant, came to be seated on a throne of gold, surrounded by a celebrity entourage, and enforced through military power. A look in the mirror. Constantine rebuilt the church as a temple, a mockery of Jesus and the gospel. The gospel says, You are reconciled to God. You have a new community of brothers and sisters. You have a purpose in the world. Constantine's forms said the opposite. You are separated from God. People are divided into clergy and laity. The world is divided into sacred and secular. The Old Testament temple made sense. The message was consistent. We were separated from God, and the forms reinforced the message. Not so with Constantine's temple. 
The fourth place would now be a place of mixed messages, a place of confusion. Of course, it was not all Constantine's fault. It was happening prior to his reign, and it continued after his death. What Constantine spearheaded, many others continued as Christendom, the spread of Christianity through the power of the state. The movement continued for another millennium and continues to influence us today. Constantine and Christendom embody the origins of the modern fourth place. Be aware that it likely would have happened with or without Constantine. The history of the faith is a constant cycle of the death of true faith through power and the reawakening of faith through the Spirit of Christ. If we take an honest look in the mirror, we can see the inclination towards separation in all of us. We all deal with the lust for notoriety and personal gain. We all want to distinguish the clean from the unclean, the holy insiders from the unholy outsiders. We are all drawn to the impressive. Separation is easy. Separation is in our nature from the garden. Integration is much harder. The way of Christ is to walk humbly, to serve, to pray, to look to the unseen God in the midst of the weak rather than the strong, to promote others instead of ourselves. Let us take a look at our own heart as we continue the journey. A major fixer-upper. Now, some of you may be wondering about the Reformation. Didn't the Reformation fix most of these issues? That is a very complex question, but the short answer is not as much as you might think. While monumental reform took place in theology and content, changes to the medium were more slow and varied. One way to think about it is this. If Constantine was the temple architect and Christendom was the temple builder, then the reformers were the temple remodelers. By the 1500s, the church was a major fixer-upper, and each of the reformers had their own ideas of what should stay, what should go, and what should be painted over, and what should be raised to the ground. Luther was a coat-of-paint kind of guy. He sandblasted Catholic theology, but in terms of the medium, he kept the basic service order, building and decor, just about the same. Calvin was more of a down-to-the-studs remodeler. He stripped the organs and icons, but mostly just traded the elevation of the host, the climax of the mast, for the elevation of the pulpit. People used to show up late to catch the elevation. Now they would show up late to catch the sermon. Despite all of the fighting and war and more fighting, most of the remodels were cosmetic in nature. The free church movement probably did the most to address the underlying medium, but most of the changes of the Reformation were just tweaks made to the same basic temple wineskin. Church generally remained a holy place where holy people do holy things. The Reformed Church kept the Ave Maria, Latin for Hail Mary, as part of the liturgy for 40 years. Zwingli corrected the theology of the prayers of the Mass, but left them in Latin. Calvin, to his chagrin, only took communion four times a year. One reformer moved the baptismal font next to the pulpit. Another kept the font near the church entrance. One added congregational singing. One said the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Another said it in French. Another removed it altogether. A lot changed and a lot didn't. Why were the reformers able to do so little with the medium? Because when the pendulum swings so far over a thousand years to the side of holy places, holy people, and holy practices, it can hardly be expected that one or even ten generations can make a monumental correction so quickly. Though the reformers did a great deal in the realm of theology— 
They left Constantine's basic forms and foundations largely untouched. We will see as we transition to part two of the book that despite the best efforts of the reformers, the influence of Constantine and Christendom is still alive and well in the modern church.